I'm excited. It is the Christmas season. It's upon us. And uh, the theme of our Christmas series is Let It Be. And uh, we are uh, redeeming some Beatles songs as part of the service. So if you missed the Beatles song in the opening, then you were out there getting your coffee still. You have my permission to hang around to the start of second service and catch it. And, uh, and you know, just make sure you let the people who are in second service get a seat and, uh, and catch it. And it's like the gospel according to John Paul George and Ringo, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> but we're in the redemption business. And I, uh, some people ask me, what about you know, creative elements? And what do we do? And how do we feel about those things? And here's how I feel about that. We're in the redemption business. Jesus is in the redemption business. God's in the redemption business. Uh, and uh, the enemy doesn't create things. He distorts and manipulates and steals and kills and destroys. And we redeem things like the arts and music and dance and creative elements and uh, kerplunk and now and laters. We redeem things. And so that's what we do here in uh, I'm excited about that. But this series um, is launching off with this idea that nothing is going to change my world. And I was thinking about uh, being in the redemption business. I was thinking about this funny story that I heard about a Seahawk fan. He was a lifelong Seahawk fan, and uh, like most lifelong Seahawk fans, he had lived most of his life not experiencing much victory. But his dream was to go to a Super Bowl and see the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. He assumed that would never happen. But it did happen, and the Seahawks got to the Super Bowl, and they lost to the Steelers. Once that happened, he decided, if lightning strikes twice, I'm going to the Super Bowl. Lightning did strike again, but unfortunately, he wasn't able to go, and the Seahawks won. And he decided there's no way lightning can strike three times. But if it does, I'm going to the Super Bowl. So his family gathered around and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a fund. And if there's any way that the Seahawks ever make it to the Super Bowl again, we're going to send our dad, our husband, our friend. We're going to send him. So they start this fund. And lo and behold, lightning strikes a third time. And he gets an opportunity because the Seahawks are going to the Super Bowl. It's the end of 2014, 2015. And the game's in Arizona. And his family pulls all their resources together and they say, we want you to go to the Super Bowl. So they buy him. They can only afford to send him. They send him alone to the Super Bowl. He gets to Arizona. He does all of the fun Super Bowl stuff, sees all of the workup stuff, all the exciting things. He's having the time of his life. He's taking selfies. He's doing all the fun stuff. He's listening to things like, oh, I'm just here so I don't get fined. And he's having a blast. The game happens, and he shows up at the game, and he's got his ticket. And he looks at his ticket, and he realizes that his seat is closer to the blimp than it is to the game. So he hikes all the way up there and gets into his seat. And he's like, I don't care. I'm at the game. It's awesome. And the game's going on. He was smart and he brought a pair of binoculars. So he's watching the game through binoculars on a little tiny screen. But he doesn't care, he's at the game. About halfway through the first half, he's just scanning around the game and he notices something at the 50 yard line, about six rows back, an aisle seat is empty. He's like, no way. So he's watching the rest of the first half and he keeps watching and watching, but every once in a while he just looks up, nobody's sitting in that seat. Looks up, nobody's sitting in that seat. Looks up, it gets all the way to halftime and no one has sat in this seat. So he makes a decision. I don't care if I get kicked out. I don't care if I get arrested. I am sneaking down to the lower level at halftime 
and I am sitting in that seat. Halftime show happens. I don't know what's going on. It's exciting. So he makes his way, sneaks past security. He's like a ninja. He gets down into the lower bowl and he works his way over to that seat. A little ways into the third quarter, he finally gets to the seat. Kerplunk sits down at the seat. He's like, this is awesome. All of my dreams are coming true. The game's going on and finally he turns and looks at the guy next to him. He says, man, I cannot believe that someone paid for this seat but didn't come to the game. The guy looks at him kind of seriously and he goes, you know, unfortunately, that was my wife's seat and she passed away recently. And he's like, oh, and that is heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. I'm so sad to hear that. But I have to ask, was there no one, not a family member, not a friend, that you could convince to come with you to the game and sit in the seat? And the guy looks at him and he goes, man, I got to tell you, I asked everyone we knew, every family member and every friend. And you know what they said? They all said they were going to her funeral. <laughs> so we're in a series called Nothing's Gonna Change My World. And isn't it funny? Sometimes we get locked in to a plan. We get locked in to what's gonna happen in our life. And it's like, no matter what happens, I'm gonna do the thing that I planned on doing. All right, you guys can breathe. <laughs> oh man, we redeem things around here. I haven't tried out a joke on that level with you guys yet to see how you guys could hang. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm never coming back. Nothing's going to change my world. It's interesting that the holidays sometimes bring up some of the big life changes that we've gone through. They're exasperated and put into perspective at the holidays. I remember the first Christmas that we had without my grandmother. She passed away. Um, she got brain cancer and died really, really quick. And her birthday was December 23rd. And so the holidays were always about grandma's birthday and then Christmas at grandma's house. So it was like the long week of just partying at grandma's house and eating grandma's food. And uh, I remember the first Christmas after grandma passed. Now, you may need to, to give you reference. I lived with my grandmother until I was almost nine years old. And so for me, grandma was like mom too. She always told my mom, I raised him until he was nine and then you kidnapped him. And so, and so I was, you know, the, you know when, when you're with all the family and all the cousins, there's always one who, who feels like they're the favorite and acts like they're the favorite, except for I am the favorite. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I'm the favorite, and I remember what it was like that first time to go to Christmas and do all the Christmas stuff without Grandma there, to have, like, knockoff Christmas food because you knew that it was someone else trying to do some of Grandma's recipes, but it wasn't the same thing. And you just had, you know, and, and it's weird because for, for a long time, I couldn't get excited about Christmas anymore. Because the things that made Christmas Christmas had changed for me. The things that had made the holidays, the holidays a chance. Some of you have gone through those transitions and seen some of those things. You've had family situations that have changed and your world has changed. And sometimes the holidays just reminds us that the world has changed. A lot of times our world changes at a, at a time that surprises us. We're just cruising along. Everything seems to be going according to plan. We've got tickets to the big game, whatever. And then an epic moment hits, a storm hits, 
If you're here last week, we talked about the fact that storms come to everybody. And our world changes. And depending on our heart condition and depending on the foundation of our life, what happens to us in that storm, it really, really affects us. Some of you have gone through storms that have really, really challenged and changed your life. How many of you are controllers and you like to control everything? Come on, you can wave at me. Yeah, there's some of us in here. We like to control everything. Some of the hardest times for us are when things happen that are uncontrollable. Because we're people and we deal with people, usually things aren't controllable. Because we live on earth, usually things aren't controllable. But we like to feel like we're in control. You woke up this morning, many of you, with a plan. You were going to first service because there's a football game. You've got food and it, it's timed out when it's going to happen. So you've already decided that if I go late, you're not coming back again for the rest of the NFL season because I messed with your food plans. <laughs> you've already got maybe your whole week plan. Some of you last week during Black Friday had a, a shopping plan. You knew. You were like, we have to be done with turkey by three o'clock because that's when JCPenney's opens. And I got to get my snow globe. I don't know if they used to pass those out. Some of you, it timed out. You're like, I have to get up at 4.30 so I can go to Fred Meyer and get to Walmart by whatever. And whatever it is, right? You're planners. Some of you have this week planned out. Some of you have your whole Christmas month locked in. You know when you're wrapping presents. You know when you're buying tape. You have all of the things lined up. Some of you are just floating through and you're like, everything better work though. I don't have any of this planned, but here's what I expect. And hopefully you surround yourself with a good planner. But sometimes in life, things happen that you just can't control. Sometimes they're huge. Sometimes they're global. 9-11 was one of those global things that have national, just affected everybody. Sometimes they're personal. A doctor's appointment doesn't go how you thought it was going to go. You just pick up the phone on a random Tuesday and the news is catastrophic and scary and life-changing. Sometimes you're just going along life and you think everything should be the same and you look around and you think, man, things will never be the same. And what do I do now? And how do I deal with that? And the Christmas story is powerful because the central characters of the story, the central humans who were involved in the story, this young couple, Mary and Joseph, experienced the kind of news that radically changes a life. Some of you have experienced a surprise pregnancy. Some of you are the product of a surprise pregnancy. This guy in that category. And we see this amazing story of this young couple whose world gets changed, whose world gets rocked, and the response that they have is amazing. That story of the first Christmas changed the world for a young couple. Now, it's interesting. I feel like, depending on what your background is, you either have one of two strong feelings about Mary. As we go to talk about Mary, if you come from a certain background, you feel like perhaps Mary gets too much credit. 
Mary gets too much credit. We oversell Mary. You think, oh, to the point where some of you come from backgrounds where you literally pray in a way that's directed at Mary. And, you, and, and so some of us feel like, well, we oversell. Now, on the other extreme is we undersell Mary. And we don't talk about her at all, except for Christmas time. We just run by Mary and write to the event. And I think we can err on either side. But the truth is, when we talk about Mary, she's one of the most incredible people to have ever walked the earth. And her story is amazing. And so I want us to get a little bit of a picture of the life that was happening between Mary and Joseph and how they responded when this incredible event splits time and culture in half and intersects with them. But there's some things you should know about Mary. One of the things you should know about Mary is that she was probably illiterate. At that time, it was not entirely common for women to be even educated. And she was from a very small town. She would have had to start working right away in whatever the family industry was and getting prepared to get married. And she probably, most likely, wasn't very educated. Another thing you should know about Mary. She was a listener of God's word. We know this because in a little bit, she's going to quote some of God's word. So someone who's probably a functionally illiterate, not reading, not writing, was able to reiterate things that she had heard from God's word. She listens to God's word. Something else about Mary. She prayed. She prayed to God. Mary has a prayer life. She's a young woman who's committed to interacting and praying to God. She sang songs to God. You may not know this. Mary was a worshiper. She never gets in our list of, of historically great worshipers. But she sang songs to God. She was a worshiper. This one, I love this because I don't know how many of your nativity sets show Mary as a teenager. How many of them do you look at Mary and go, yeah, she looks about 13? Mary was a teenager. We've got to talk about this for a minute because this is a really big piece of the picture of what I want you to catch from this story because it's just true. Most historians will agree there is no way that she was older than 17 years old when the time of this story. But most likely she's between 12, 13, 14, 15. Somewhere in that range. Now, I need your help for a minute because you have a picture of Mary in your head. I need you to recalibrate that. I want you to think about, if you're a girl, think about your 13-year-old year and get a picture of yourself at 13. If you're a gentleman, think about a 13-year-old, 14, 15-year-old teenager that's in your life. Some, just some picture. Get a picture of that for just a second. I want to recalibrate you to Mary. She's 13, 14, 15 years old. Some of you are in shock right now. She might be 16 or 17 at the high side. Some of you at 16 or 17, your parents were like, you're not ready to drive just yet. And they held that back a little bit, right? Most of us at 14, 15, 16 years old, we look at a teenage girl and go, not ready for many of the problems of the world yet. What can we shelter you from? Not many of us would look at a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old girl and say, you know, I got a job for you. How about raising Jesus? How about being the mother of Jesus? How about that? 
I want you to get a picture of who Mary is. She is young. Now, in that time and in that culture, it was normal for them to get married at that time, to take on responsibility at that time. But she is young. She's not 30. She's not 40. She's not wise. Wizened. <laughs> One more thing you should know. According to the biblical narrative, she had more kids after Jesus. According to the biblical narrative, she had more kids. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says, when they're in Jesus' hometown, his neighbors go, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with them? And they took offense to him. Just according to the biblical narrative, there were, this is a big family she's eventually going to have. But this is very early in her story. She's just a kid. So let's take a look at Mary getting her world rocked. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. You can open to Luke chapter 1, and then I'm going to jump over to Matthew, so they're pretty easy to find. Now, it's important to take a look at this. Luke, who writes the book of Luke, we believe he actually spent time with Mary. He was a historian, a doctor, and he gathered up the story of Jesus, and he went to eyewitnesses. And he talked with them and he spent time with them. Now, this is important in the book of Luke because when he writes this, this is information he got from the horse's mouth. Can you imagine sitting down with Mary saying, tell me how it all got started. Tell me what it was like. What did it sound like? What did it smell like? Where were you? And they could walk to places and see what, was, what it was like. They could see the ground there. They could see her home, where she was living. She was in this little town of Nazareth. And so Luke's talking to Mary, and Mary shares the story. And she says this, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a town called Galilee. Now, this is cool. There's only two angels that we know by name in the scriptures. One is Gabriel, and one has the most awesome name in the history of the universe. Michael. I like to call him Mike because, you know, that's how we roll. <laughs> Gabriel and Mike are the only two angels we know by name in Scripture. We know there are many, but we know those two guys by name. Gabriel shows up approximately four times throughout the Scripture. He shows up in Daniel's time. Here's what I love about Gabriel. Gabriel knows some good information about what's going to happen. We have a picture in Daniel that he actually stands in the presence of God. And so in the book of Daniel, he is the angel that explains the prophetic things that Daniel is seeing to him. And he kind of spills the beans on this exciting story and narrative that's part of what God's doing about Jesus and a redeemer coming. That's Gabriel. And so Gabriel shows up on the scene in a little town, not of Bethlehem, called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is really important for us to know some things about. We already know Mary's pretty young, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in that range. Now we know she's from a small town called Nazareth. Now, we know something about Nazareth. We know that when Jesus is now 30 and he's recruiting the disciples, he meets Nathaniel. And, uh, well, actually, he hasn't even met Nathaniel yet. The, uh, Nathaniel's brother, Philip, comes to him and says, hey, come 
and meet Jesus. And he's like, who's Jesus? He's like, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Nathaniel says? Does anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth is a know-nothing place. It's a no-account place. It's a small town of small towns. I was trying to think, it's like the other side of the railroad tracks. It's not affluent. There's nothing there. No one goes there. Nothing happens there. There's not, it's, I don't know what the equivalent is around here. I make fun of Fife, but I've never even been to Fife. Fife's probably awesome. I just like saying Fife. But it's like Fife. No one goes there. You're only from there, right? And that's Nazareth. Nazareth, historians believe, archaeological evidence shows there was probably 50 to 100 people that lived in Nazareth, one well. It's a small town. Now there's a site there, and because of the historical significance, there's a city there. But in Jesus' time, nothing came from Nazareth. It's a one-horse town, one-well town couple of tradespeople. There was likely a, a Roman uh, 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 city near enough by that they would kind of go to work and come back. They lived outside of the actual community. They were just a small clump of nobodies from nowhere. That's what Nazareth really was. It wasn't a great place. It was actually not just, Nathaniel didn't just say, did anything come from, from Nazareth off the cuff, that was a saying. That was a common phrase. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. But Mary's in Nazareth. I think how awesome it is that God jumps off this story. He starts it by sending an angel to a young girl with no power, no influence, no wealth, no esteem beyond her just humble beginnings into a humble location. Here's what I want you to catch. The backstory, see, I love a good superhero backstory. I don't know about you, a good superhero backstory, overcome conflict, come from humble beginnings, landed in a cornfield in Smallville, Kansas, and raised, by, you know, and all of a sudden a superhero comes from that. What does it tell us? Like anybody from anywhere can be part of this story. You don't have to be affluent from the right place, from the right family, from the right anything. You can be just some person from somewhere. This story was for everybody. Nazareth. God can use anybody. A town in Galilee, a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. There's so much to work with here. She was pledged. She was pledged to be married. Now, that's an interesting thing that we don't do anymore. I mean, we do uh, engagements, but pledged and betrothed were different things back then. It was actually a legal contract. It was married before you're married. To get out of being pledged, to get out of being betrothed, you would actually have to get divorced, even though you weren't married yet. So being pledged to be married was a really big deal. It wasn't just like, oh, I was pledged over here, but it didn't work out, so we broke that off, and I got pledged over here, and it didn't work out, so we broke that off. So then I got pledged over here, and then finally we got married. Being pledged to be married was a big deal. Now, there's lots of speculation on why culturally that happened, but let me give you just an easy speculation. Usually the betrothal or the pledged period lasted for about a year. A couple of things. One, they're pretty young. They're pretty young. 
Two, it was a really big deal because of inheritance rights, because property and wealth moved through the family line to make sure that that first baby was your baby, to make sure that that child was your child. They didn't have Ancestry.com or DNA tests or whatever horrible afternoon show to look at the results and say, it's your baby. They didn't have that. So the process they had was you and I are gonna be set apart for each other. We're not gonna consummate this thing and get married yet. We're gonna be betrothed for about a year. At the end of that betrothal, we'll get married and you know, we'll make things official. So she's pledged to be married. It's a big deal. Here's the thing. She lives in a town of probably 5,200 people. The pickings are relatively slim of who she could be betrothed to or who she could get married to. I just want you to do the basic math. There's probably not a lot of people in her age bracket who are the appropriate gender for her to even have as options for marriage. So it is pretty critical that this doesn't get messed up for her. She now has a plan. Her life is on a path. And she has Joseph, who she has probably known her whole life. If there's 50 or 100 people in your town and one well, there's no strangers. There's no strangers. She's probably known Joseph her whole life. Maybe at some point fell in love. I don't know. The other thing to catch, we know she's a virgin and we know she is very, very young. And we know from what's about to happen that she has a incredible sensitivity to God and to spiritual things. Now, here's the thing that's incredible. I've been a youth pastor most of my adult life working with teenagers and they run the gamut. They run the gamut. When kind of, I always say, like when they kind of come online and their brain starts functioning and they're able to process and make decisions and, and, uh, and it's okay, you know, it's okay to say, you know, I got, I got kids that are under teen years right now and they're just along for the ride. Right, they got opinions on things, but they're just along for the ride. But there's a time when they kinda, you kind of come online. You start thinking critically and making decisions for yourself and becoming a little bit self-aware. And, and, uh, and, and, and here's Mary. And she seems to have gotten there. And it's an incredible story for young girls to know that it is possible at a very young age to make a decision of who you are and what you stand for, no matter what happens to you. It is a story that kids need to hear, young folks need to hear, adults need to hear, ladies and gentlemen need to hear, but there is something incredibly powerful, a truth about Mary. She's about to encounter one of, one of the most amazing scenes in history, and there is a depth to her. There is a maturity to her. There is a processing of this information that's in her that is something we should absolutely, See, And here's what it reminds me of. Not every, I'm going to be, sound like an old man here for a second. Not every young person you know fits into a stereotype. Not every young person you know, come on, I'm, I'm going to be so careful, requires uh, uh, the kind of coddling that, that, that gets on the news that it looks like young people might need. Some are strong. Many are strong and have identity and know who they are and have convictions. And we shouldn't ever lump 
You know what? Jesus basically led a youth group, a youth movement, and changed the world. All those guys were young. He was just 30. They changed the world. So I never want to get jaded. Come on, don't let the news get you jaded about a generation coming behind you. There is hope in the young people of this nation, of this world. There is hope in them, and God moves through the hearts of young folks. They haven't all come online yet, but when they do, there is incredible hope. The future and the kingdom's in good hands. So there's Mary. And it says, an angel went to her, verse 28, and said, and we know it's Gabriel, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Hold on just a second. That's amazing. Remember, Mary talked to Luke. So this is the real story of how she felt about this. But you gotta think, there's 50 to 100 people in her circle. And in her culture, it would be very strange for an adult male to just walk up to her and say, greetings. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That's a strange, absurd moment in her life up to this point. Her life doesn't look like this. It would be inappropriate for any strange man to address her even at all, let alone like this. And so it says she's greatly troubled and wondered at his words and what kind of greeting this might be. You know what this reminds me of? There are times in our lives, come on, nothing's gonna change our world, where the Lord shows up and says, hey, guess what? There is something amazing coming down the pipeline for you. There is a plan for you. There is a destiny for you. There is a dream for you. And your response is, I'm a little troubled by all this. I'm wondering, my skepticism alert just went, right? I like where my life's at right now. Or even if I don't, I know how to make this life work. And here comes the Lord. Here comes the messenger of the Lord. Here comes the, the, the vision of the Lord. Here comes, come on, the, the destiny, the plan that God has for your life. And it doesn't look like what you've got planned. 50 to 100 people in her life. Who knows how many of them she's related to. And here comes some evangelistic angel. Like, hey, guess what? God has something for you. And her response is reasonable. Uh, what in the world is this about? <laughs> I'm not so sure. We've all had those moments where our life was just cruising along and God said, hey, here's, here's something for you. I'm just cruising along and I see a need and all of a sudden something leaps and I go, oh, I could, I could do something. Whoa, that was weird. I never do that kind of stuff. And we're like, oh, we got to shut it down, right? Go back to nothing can change my world. But what is Mary's response? Of course, it's being troubled. Of course, it's wondering what's going on. Verse 30 says, but the angel said to her, hey, don't be afraid for you found favor with God. I don't know how to word this, guys, but there's times where we have a fear response when God's trying to give favor to us. When we have a fear response, God's trying, to, God's trying to bless us. God's trying to do something incredible. Some of you, when I was joking about, you know, finding out that you're pregnant, some of you had, you had an incredible fear response. Now you look back and go, hey, favor of the Lord. But in the moment, fear response, fear response. I love that Gabriel sets it up. He's like, don't be afraid. This is the favor of the Lord. And then look what he says next, because this is insane to say to somebody. Verse 31 
you, young girl, Mary, small town, not married, virgin, pledged to somebody, will be with child and give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. I want you to catch this. There is no illusion about what he's talking about. He's saying, you, Mary, Nazareth, small town, are gonna have a baby. And that baby isn't gonna be any ordinary baby. He's gonna be made from the same stuff as God. He'll be the son of God and he will be God, the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, Mary. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Wait, what? Time out, time out. You just told me to not be afraid. And then you said, I'm gonna have a baby and he's gonna be the son of God and he's gonna be the king and he's gonna reign over the house of David and he's gonna take care of the, king, uh, the house of David, uh, uh, sorry, David and Jacob. His kingdom will never end. This is not a small thing. Now we know that Mary knows some scripture. And for 700 years, there's been a prophecy that Isaiah gave talking about a coming child. And she's able to do the math. And I can only imagine in a small town where you don't read and you don't watch TV and you don't check Facebook. In a culture that's all one culture and things revolve around the story of God and the Torah and the, and the uh, prophetic books that those kids growing up in those small towns are gonna be aware of an incredible story that for 700 years, their culture, every little Hebrew girl has known that one of them is gonna have a child and that that child's gonna be Emmanuel, God with us. And for 700 years, small towns to big towns across this culture that has preserved itself for 700 years, there has been a dream in the hearts of young girls that maybe... I'll get to meet him, even maybe more. I'll be in the story. And here's an angel showing up to Mary, saying, guess what? You're part of the story now. God has favored you. So how does she respond? Verse 34. Um, how will this be? <laughs> How's this gonna be? Asked Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Now, I love this. If you're a highlighter and you got your Bible out, you can highlight how will this be. This is an incredible response. This is an okay response. This is not a I don't have faith response. And I don't have faith response is this cannot be. This is how can this be? This is a good response. This is a, hey, that's amazing, but I don't get it. <laughs> right? And many of you, part of your walk with Jesus has that element. Hey, that's amazing, but I don't get it. I know in my journey with Jesus, time after time, I get to a certain place and I'm like, God, I know you can do this, but I don't get it. I know you're capable of doing this, but I don't get it. I know that your word says this is who you are and what you do, but I don't get it. I know that you're in control even when, a, even when the, the storms of life hit, but I don't get it. Faith can handle those kinds of questions. Those are faith-filled questions. 
Those are appropriate questions. It's okay to look at your life and your circumstance and look at the word of God and say, I don't get it. But I believe. I don't get it. But I believe. And I love that she gets practical. She's like, listen, I know I'm from a small town. I'm relatively uneducated compared to what's capable to be out there. But you may not realize this since, you know, angels aren't in the habit of having kids. But here on earth, the way we have kids, there's a process. It's early in the process. We're not there yet, Gabriel. How can this be? Because I'm a virgin. It doesn't work that way. Here's what you got to catch. There's a difference between unbelief and questions. The angel answered. So I love this. Gabriel's like, oh, let me explain it for you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is gonna have a child in her old age and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. And verse 37, if you're underlining and you're following me, underline this, for nothing is impossible with God. Oh, you don't know how, how things work with God? Let me remind you, there is not a thing that is impossible for God. Some of you and some of us going through radical moments of our world getting rocked just need to come back to this truth every once in a while. God, I know you're in it. My faith is still here. I don't know why this is happening, but I know two things. You're in control and nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. And then look at Mary's response. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. If you go to may it be, some versions will say, let it be. Let it be Christmas. Let it be to me as you have said. I love this. You see, there's a difference between unbelief and questions. Some of us have unbelief and some of us have questions. Some of us look at the story of the scriptures and the testimony of people who are living with, for Jesus and they say, I don't believe. That's different. Some of us say, hey, I believe, but I got some questions. Right? I believe, but I got some questions. Mary believes, but she's got some questions. It's okay to be in that tension. Faith is okay with questions. Some of you feel like, well, I got questions, so I don't believe. That's not necessarily the case. I got questions. I hope you have questions. Faith is actually like a muscle. It gets worked out and exercised when it confronts our questions. God's big enough to deal with your questions. Mary gets her question answered. It gets answered like this. Nothing's impossible for God. Oh yeah. Welcome to the answer to most of your questions. A changed world goes from how can this be to let it be. Sometimes our world gets changed and we think, how can this be? How can it be? The difference in a heart that says, how can this be? And gets to let it be. I want to look at the other parent for just a moment before I run out of time. Because he gets his world changed too. Let's talk about Joseph. Some things you should probably know about Joseph. Number one, you probably know he's a carpenter. What you don't know is there's not very much wood in Nazareth or trees. So by carpenter, he's probably more of a guy that works with stone. He's a stonemason. 
Their houses are built out of stone there. They lay bricks. He's a stonemason, most likely. He's strong, dealing in labor force. He's blue collar. He's also probably not wealthy. No indication that he was super wealthy. You know, one of the pictures that we have of the, uh, of the birth, and I was going to wait until I get there, but I can't get it out of my head right now, is, is this picture of them showing up in Bethlehem. And we'll get there. And when they show up in Bethlehem, what does it look like? There's Joseph, and what's behind him? A donkey, right? And Mary's on the donkey, and they're coming out. Do you know how many donkeys there are in the scripture? There are no donkeys. That's a cool picture, and it might very well have happened, but there's no indication that they could afford an animal to bring with them on the journey. It's just as likely that very, very pregnant Mary's hoofing it into town. But we like the donkey picture, so it's cool. You can keep that in your nativity. Don't worry. But there's no indication that he's wealthy or that they have any of those things. He's also kind and he's forgiving. We're going to get to know his character here a little bit. He's kind and he's forgiving. He's also probably a teenager. He's unmarried. He might be a little older than Mary, but he's probably relatively young. We had the conversation about teenage girls. Most of you, I'll spare you thinking about a teenage boy being responsible for raising the son of God. But I'll remind you, we don't paint everyone with the same brush. We don't paint everyone with the same brush. He's probably a teenager. We know he knew and he honored the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures also. He respected them. He respected the laws. He respected the customs of his people. Finally, we also know he was from a small town also. Again, someone from no reputation, not from a wealthy position who's young, enters into history as one of the most important people in history. Joseph's story is over in Matthew, so I'm going to flip back to Matthew chapter 1 because Matthew focuses on him a little bit. And I'll just give you a couple verses and then we'll land the plane here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew says it this way. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged. There we go again. Remember, she was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Remember, they had a system. One year of betrothal. She's not supposed to get pregnant during this time. Being found to be with child during this time is catastrophic for her potentially. And it's catastrophic for Joseph. The pool of women he knows that are of Marian age is probably relatively small as well. His resources to lead a family are probably tied to her. How important would it be for him that this was his child? He knew that the law allowed for him to technically divorce her. What's wild is you could, yeah, you could be a divorced virgin. That wasn't uncommon in their time. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He was righteous. Some versions say he was good or he was just or he was a man of stern principles. 
But here's what he's willing to do. Again, he's probably known her his whole life. He's just going to quietly divorce her and separate himself from her. You got to understand what a huge deal this is because by law, by law, he could publicly shame her. He could basically end her life. They, the, the community would shun her. If you only know 50 or 100 people and you're out, that's a hard life. That's a hard life. What's incredible about some of Mary's stories, you got to think, her response to Gabriel that she's going to have a kid outside of marriage puts her at risk of this, at risk of being shunned, at risk of being essentially excommunicated from her family, from her community. She's planning a wedding, ladies. She's got the plan. I don't know if she's got a dress ready. I don't know what the plan is. Whatever the plan is, she's on a plan. And for her to say, let it be, is a huge deal because she's at incredible risk depending on how Joseph reacts to this information. She doesn't know that Joseph's getting an angel visitation. She just knows that God's up to something. So he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. He was free to let the laws of the land expose her and humiliate her, but he was going to avoid that and just remain righteous and leave her. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Leave that up there for a little bit. There is so much stuff in this little phrase. First of all, how convinced does Joseph have to be? How much faith he has to know? Because this is his family history. This is his reputation. This is his lineage. He's of the line of David. He's of no account, but he's of the line of David. Everything that he has that he holds valuable is now at risk. Joseph believed some of us have a hard time. The virgin birth is such an incredible story. Here's the thing. It doesn't work. It's not a thing. Mary's response is, hey, that's not how it works. You don't go from virgin to pregnant without something happening. And then you don't get to be virgin and pregnant at the same time. It's not a thing. And so Joseph is so convinced that he goes from, I'll just quietly and politely cut her out of my life I will embrace, embrace her. And not only will I embrace her, I will name him Jesus. Now, Jesus is a powerful name. The reason is because we know Jesus, that's the Greek translation of his name. His name in the Hebrew is one we're a little more familiar with. It's Joshua, but they don't pronounce the J, so it's Yeshua. Now, that's a significant name because there's only one other Joshua in the scriptures that's of account. And there's a pretty powerful story and legacy connected to Joshua. Joshua is the one who led the people into the Moses land, or Moses land, promised land after Moses. Joshua is important. He's a leader. And you know what kind of leader is? He's a military leader. He's an overthrow the inhabitants of the land and establish the kingdom of God on earth in the promised land kind of leader. It's a strong name. It's a powerful name. And the angel says, you're going to name him Yeshua. And I imagine Joseph going, yes. <laughs> Finally, 
God's getting involved in our story. We need a dominant leader. We need the Messiah. Rome is kicking our tail. Herod is wicked and evil and in the pocket of Rome. We have no leadership that's honoring God. Here comes the leadership. And then the angel says, and he'll save the people. Yes. And then this little tag, from their sins. Wait, what? Uh, excuse me, Gabriel. We got a system for sin removal. I go about six miles south, 60 miles south once a year. I'm poor, so I just bring a couple doves. If I was wealthy, I'd bring a goat. I bring it to the, table, the, te the temple. I bring my knife. We do business. Peace out, God. We're good. And I go back. Sin dealt with. That's the plan right now. There's a system. What we really need is a soldier who will overthrow Herod, bring justice and righteousness back into the kingdom, and then take on Rome. We need the plagues. Joshua, it's connected to Moses. We need the plagues, frogs, and blood, all that cool stuff, so that Rome gets out of here, leaves us the people of God alone. But that's not the promise. The promise is he will save the people from their sins. This is the first indication that this whole story of Messiah is gonna go another direction. Another direction. That it's going to not meet expectations, it's going to exceed expectations. That this, this, this process that has been up until this point in history of connecting with God is going to be transformed. A new covenant, a new promise is coming. No longer is there going to be a place that deals with our mistakes. There's going to be a person. That's incredibly good news. I can imagine that it was confusing. I want to look at Joseph's response before we run out of time here. Verse 24. Jump ahead a little bit here. So Joseph woke up and look at what it says. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home to be his wife. Listen, some of us, our world gets changed and we just don't want to do it. Mary believed, she said, let it be. We'll get to her rest of her response in a second. But Joseph's response is pretty awesome. He actually did it. Last week we talked about Jesus at the end of his greatest sermon saying, hey, you heard the words, now you have to do the words. You've heard my call in your life. Now you have to do it. And Joseph, see, where did he get that from? Joseph heard from God, then he woke up and he did it. You can hear from God, you can do it. Yeah, it may change your world. Yeah, it may rock your world, but you can hear from God and you can do it. Mary, the end of her response, I'm gonna jump back over to Luke. I'm ping-ponging just a little bit. The end of that story, that first part of that story, Luke chapter one, verse 46. It says, and Mary said, and then Mary, Mary sings a song. She's a worshiper. Mary sings a song. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. This is her response. You gotta remember, she is in an incredibly vulnerable position. She doesn't know Joseph's part of the story yet. She just knows an angel showed up and said, you're gonna have a baby. Remember that story that's 700 years old? Yeah, that's you. That's you. 700 years ago, Isaiah wrote this down. 
He wrote it down for you. And she's like, how can this be? And Gabriel's like, hey, nothing's impossible for God. Oh, yeah, that part got away from me. Hey, let it be. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She's at risk, she's at danger, but she sees that God has a plan. And even in the confusion and potential fear, she says, my soul rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Some of you feel like, ha, God's not been mindful to my humble situation. God hasn't noticed how tough it's been, how, how, how of low of count that I've felt like I've been. From now on, all generations are gonna call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things to me and holy is his name. Mary responds to world-changing news and says, may it be, let it be, and she worships. Joseph hears from God and he just does it. Here's the huge factor when something comes to change our world. Do you believe? What do you believe? Do you believe God can do anything? Do you believe God still got this? Do you believe God's still in control? Do you believe he still has the whole world in his hands? If he does, then he can change your world. How do you respond when your world changes? Sometimes your world changes and it seems that it's horrible and it is horrible, but can God still redeem it? Do you believe God can move through the horrible and change anything? Do you believe it? Mary's response was to worship. I'm all in. Joseph's response was to take action. We've got to do it. I've heard from God and we've got to do it. We've got to put the house for sale. We've got to move. We've got to do it. We've got to change jobs. We've got to give to this thing. We've got to do whatever it is. We've got to do it. We've got to stop this and go this direction. I've heard from the Lord. I've got to do it. When I first started serving God, I, I was in the how can it be phase for a long time. I was asking questions. And it took a while to get to the let it be phase. And for some of us, we're in the how can it be phase. And that's okay. The Christmas story is about moving from the how can this be, God? I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. To there is nothing impossible for God. It's a huge piece of it. Between the two of them, we see worship. And we see action. So let me ask you this question. How do you respond when God wants to change your world? How do you respond when your world gets changed? Because that determines your legacy. Determines your imprint here on life. Here's something I want you to catch. Jesus sounds a lot like his mom. When he talks in Matthew 26, he, he, he went away and he's praying. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away from me, Unless I drink it, then may your will be done. Let it be. There's nothing impossible for God. Would you stand with me? I just wanna, I wanna ask you some basic questions. Last week we talked, if you weren't here, we talked, like I said, about how action will determine your foundation. What you do will determine your foundation. So how's your foundation this Christmas? Have you been doing the things to keep your foundation? Has your faith been in action? Mary and Joseph remind us that how we respond in faith and through our actions, whether we worship God, whether we trust God, whether we say, let it be, whether we take action and do that makes all the difference in our lives. 
makes all the difference in our lives. For some of you, this has been a year of big changes. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them horrible, some of them amazing, but they've been changes. And so the question is, your world's been changed. Where did that drive you to? You see, Joseph's initial response was to just go to what culture told him was appropriate to do in that situation. Oh, my world got changed. Well, culturally, here's what I can do. I file for this. I do this. I, I, whatever it is, I just do it. Some of us default to that. Some of us go back to control mode. I didn't get to control that. I'm controlling every single thing else. We go to control mode. For some of you, God just wants to ask you, don't be in fight mode. Don't be in fight mode. The more you stay in fight mode, the further off course your life gets. From your questions to your surrender determines your legacy and the course of your life. Mary looked at pretty daunting circumstances and said, let it be. Let it be. For some of you, God still wants to initiate a big change. You've been fighting the big change that God wants to initiate. You know it's there. Some of you have been in the, the, the unbelief mode and it's time to move to the faith plus questions mode. You've been in the unbelief mode. You've been like, I, can't, I hear it, but I'm not there. And God's like, listen, it's time to move past that phase. You can move past that. Don't get stuck there. And this Christmas season, it's just a question of, are you gonna move past the, I hear, but I don't believe to, yeah, I got faith, but maybe I got some questions. Don't worry, there's plenty of rooms on the questions train. We're all there saying, God, I don't understand. And God keeps coming back and saying, nothing's impossible for me. Nothing's impossible for me. Nothing's impossible for me. The God you believe in is bigger than the possible. Oh, that's right. You've been in fight mode. You had questions. Mary had questions. But it's time to trust God. And some of us just need to remind, be reminded that at any time, God has permission to shake us out of our comfort zones and your life has been too comfortable. You are so insulated and comfortable that God can't get through it. Even if he sent an angel, you'd have an excuse. And you'd leave that situation going, wow, that was weird. Good thing I don't believe that. And God's just wondering, hey, do I have permission to change your world? Can I call you to something greater? Can I call you to something more? Can I call you to something bigger? Can you believe that in your life there's a plan and a purpose for you that is beyond what you can just perceive, that I'm bigger than that? Do you have permission to change your world? Are you in nothing's gonna change my world mode? I got this now, God, thanks. I'll take it from here, All right? I got this from here. I got it. I'll deal with my family. I'll deal with my finances. I'll deal with my relationships. I'll deal with my kids. I'll deal with my, I got it from here, God. I got it. Thanks. Thanks for the help up to this point, but I got it. I got a plan. 10-year plan, five-year plan, 20-year plan, whatever it is. I'm not saying those are bad. I'm just wondering, can God change your world? Does he have permission to dive in? This Christmas season, I'm just wondering, can, can God absolutely exceed your expectations? and change your world. Let's pray. God, I am so incredibly grateful 
for the love story, the rescue story that the Christmas story is. Thanks for reminding us what this whole thing's about, that you have the ability to change the course of our history, our physical history, our spiritual and eternal destiny. You can change our legacy. I think about the families that could be impacted by this moment by someone saying, God, there's nothing impossible for you. So I'll believe, I'll change my legacy. I'll leave to my kids hope and, and I'll, I'll deposit into the next generation behind me something that's good, that is eternal. I won't live just for the now. I'll store up just not for the now, but I'll invest in forever into the later. I'm willing, God, this, this Christmas season, you have permission to do that. I pray for those, God, that, that have been considering taking that risk and have known that it's there. And today might just be the day where they said, you know what? I need to move past my unbelief and into faith. Would this moment ignite faith? Would faith come alive in hearts this holiday season as we see the power of God on display and we remember there's nothing impossible? Would our reaction, God, for some of us who have been through the toughest things not be to, to go to what we control, not be to harden our heart, but would our reaction be, God, let it be. May it be because you're in control. Would it be trust? Would it be worship like Mary worshiped? We put our hope in you, God. We put our trust in you and we thank you. Would you have your way, I pray in us. In Jesus' name, amen.